Greenwich Village, <laughs> where the search for truth and beauty goes on endlessly. And in the innermost recesses of each one of them down here burns a clear golden flame of eternal truth. Right, gang? Yeah. It's a village, all right. Egotistical. All right, we're down at the limelight at Sheridan Square, and we'll be here until midnight. And do you know what night this is, friends? This is July 4th. And if you listen carefully, back in your mind, you can hear the cannonading, the thunderous applause and uproar of eternal youth and patriotism. And so tonight, since this is the 188th birthday of the United States, let us all sing the happy birthday song. All right, gang? All right, let's go. One, two, three. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear United States of America, happy birthday to you. Hey, hey. Hey, good old United States of America, happy birthday to you. Well, since it is, it is the birthday of the United States of America, I've been listening to the radio today, and I've been trying to figure out what, what they're doing about the 4th of July, and it's practically nothing. Nobody even says anything about it. Once in a while, they'll play uh, Guy Lombardo playing the Stars and Stripes Forever. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Or they'll say, uh, the Yankees won a doubleheader to celebrate the 4th. Well, I'm going to tell you a very funny thing about the 4th of July. This is not a program tonight of nostalgia. It's a program, I suppose, based on the kind of nuttiness of which patriotism is composed. A kind of a... Patriotism is always somehow coupled with violence. How many times have you watched guys hold a cherry bomb in their hand? A red, white, and blue cherry bomb. They hold it out and they say, watch this. I'll let it go while I'm holding it. Boom! He's there. <laughs> He's celebrating the fourth. Oh, yes, this is a strange nuttiness. And when I was a kid, my father got into the fireworks business. Now, most of you, I'm sure, have watched the fireworks business from a distance just like we watch the baseball business, show business. But let me tell you something about the inside of the fireworks racket. Every year, about three or four weeks before the 4th of July, the big shipment would arrive. He really was. He had a fireworks stand, and I, I, I had to work in the stand. Boy, did I hate it. The sun is coming down, and it's hot and you're out by US 31, way out near Griffith, Indiana, someplace. 18 million cars are going past all the time in the heat and the, and, and the dust. And you, and you know, you had to make change all the time and I could hardly count and people were yelling, oh, you know, you know that rotten mess when you're about nine years old and you gotta work. They said, get out, you gotta work, you gotta go to the stand. And, Ooh, I got so I hated it. But about four weeks before the stand would open, 
which was two weeks exactly before the 4th, the shipment would arrive. And about 10 gigantic cases of this stuff would be put in our basement. Can you imagine all the fireworks that are going to be fired off in the county are in your basement? And every night you're sleeping 10 feet above them. See? And let me tell you something about the fireworks that they had those days. The fireworks were not these little red firecrackers or sparklers. Because there is a violence in the true firework celebrator that demands real things. And they used to have, I suppose you're aware that during the heyday of fireworks, there were status symbol fireworks. Oh yeah, I'm, seriously. That, that your status as a spender and as a celebrator was measured by the length of the bomb that you let go. And we used to have little ones that would start at about a dime a piece. And they were red, white, and blue, and they had a little green square piece of wood on the bottom. You remember them? Then there would be the quarter one. Then there would be the 50 cent one. Then there would be the buck one. And then there would be suicide. <laughs> I'm serious. These giant ones, we'd have them back here up, up on the shelf. And they would be way up on the top shelf. You know the way Tiffany must keep the real stuff hidden. And when a real mark comes in, they bring the thing out, you know, on the, on the velvet case. This, of course, for a person like you, this is what you want. You know, they bring it out. Well, I'd be standing back there, and I'd see my old man who got to be a fantastic fireworks salesman. He could tell by the look in the eye whether this was a true nut coming in. And guys, no, guys used to prove their virility... <laughs> by firing off fireworks. It's a great symbolism here. We can go into the Freudian thing, but that's for after the show, gang. And, and, and I'd be standing down there, you know, and, and, and the sun is beating down, and all these cars would be lined up with the radiators boiling. They've come out of town to buy the stuff. And I'm back at the counter. And these guys would get out of their car. The guy, there was, there was a kind of guy, a sort of a big butter and egg man type who bought fireworks. They'd be driving along with their Sunday afternoon cutie. So, oh, let's stop and get some of this stuff. Kid, what do you say? Let's have some fun. And they'd get out of their car and they'd come towards me. I'd be standing there behind the counter. My old man's down here with a bag of sparklers with a bunch of kids. And he'd come up and he'd say, all right, kid, what do you got? I said, well, we got Mount Vesuvius here. <laughs> Oh, by the way, do you know that there were names of fireworks like that? Mount Vesuvius? How many of you can tell me the name of the thing that went... It was a little round, flat, red thing with paper on it, and you'd put it on the ground and scrunch. Do you remember that thing? For, for weeks after they'd use these things, you'd walk along and your, your, your tennis shoes would catch on fire. What the <laughs> devil? It would get ground into the sidewalk. you remember that? Do you remember those things? What were the things, what were the things? Now, I'll give you a real brass fig, McGee, if you can tell me the name of the thing that was a big, tall tube. And when you lit it, it had a, it had a stand. It would stand up, it looked like a big firecracker. It had red, white, and blue. You'd light it, and you'd run, you'd stand back, and it would just sit there. That's the great moment. It would just sit there and look so beautiful. You know, the sun is shining on it, red, white, and blue. And it's making a slight just a little tss. and then once in a while it would be going and it would stop and the entire neighborhood would hang on the edge <laughs> you know? 
And then one poor nutty volunteers. I'm going to go and check. It's out! He'd stand back. And then it would hang there again. It would make a little sputtering. And then it would start to really go. And there would then occur the first stage. It would go chunk. Yeah, that's all. It would go chunk like that. The top would go and it would sit there. And it would be a tiny thing. Go high up, 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 up. Everybody's waiting. The one thing they're afraid of is that it's going to go up, 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 up. They didn't always work, you know. And it gets up at the top and it goes, and everybody staggers back. Oh, boy, it was great. Got another one. You remember that? What was the name of that thing? No, salute. Come on, what kind of a neighborhood? What? Roman candle. Oh, Roman candle. What a bunch of illiterates. The Roman candle was a device that was held in the hand thusly. It was a long tube, red, white, blue, red, white, blue, red, white, blue. And you'd hold it like that, chum, shoo, little ball, chum, shoo, like that. There was a great form in shooting off a Roman candle. You'd spin it three times, count twice, chum. That's a Roman candle. What was the thing that went off up in the air? Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> Greasy kid. <laughs> torpedo. A torpedo was a thing you threw against the wall and got the rocks in your eyes. <laughs> you remember that? They go, pow! <laughs> You'd have a handful of these things. <laughs> what an insane world it was, really. And, and of course, they, there was no restriction on these things. That you could get whatever you paid for. And every year, my father would lay in about ten five-dollar bombs. That was the guy that was really going to show a chick what he was made of. And they were big, great, big red, white, and blue things that came on a big green thing, and you got this thing, and you set it down, and she'd go off. Well, every day, this is the way it would work. I would give the guy his big bag, you know, ten, fifteen dollars worth of bombs, torpedoes. You don't remember the name of that bomb? The one that went up, Cracker Jack. Always trouble with women. Cracker Jack. They had a great name, and I'll tell you, the name was, it was a nationwide name, and it was inspired by Al Capone. Yeah, that's right. It was inspired by Al Capone, and that name, and it was not meant derogatory or anything. It was just, it was, it was because this thing really went off. It didn't kid around. You remember the name of it? The last word was bomb. That's right. What was it? That's right. That's what they called them. And, and they'd come up, they'd buy these things. And I remember one of the greatest incidents I ever saw in the, in the fireworks world that occurred because of one of these bombs. And I'll tell you what they called them. And don't anybody in Jersey think that I'm being derogatory to any race or any group of people. They were just called generically Dago bombs. And every week, about 10 guys would come up and invest heavily. <laughs> they would come up and buy these things, see? And, of course, there were instructions on the bottom. It says, never shoot this thing off unless it's on a solid foundation. Well, you know, the big butter and egg men, they don't read 
instructions. You know, just tear the thing off and hold it, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you, a lot of guys lost a lot of weight like that, you know. <laughs> Boom, and the arm is back in Cleveland, you know. Well, I remember one day, this is exactly what happened. I sell a guy a bag of this stuff. And in the car is sitting the blonde cutie. And she's looking out, hi, little boy. And they wave and all stuff. I say, hi. And the Willie's Night pulls out. It starts down the road with about 6,000 cars in, you know, the big traffic thing on a Sunday afternoon. And I can't believe it. This guy's hand is sticking out of the window. He's got a $3 and a half triple stage Dago bomb and it's lit. He's going to show her how the Roman candle works. <laughs> oh, and I says, hey, Dad, watch. And we see it, and sure enough, this thing goes. And you see this thing bounce across the, the lawn of a house, up on the front steps, boom, and the screen door flies out. And the other one goes through the other side of the car. Sixteen people immediately drove in and says, give me one of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, people weren't afraid of violence, you see. But the best and the only thing, no, seriously, the only thing that ever made it worthwhile, I, I saw another one of these things go off. I'm sure that all of you have stories of fireworks. But one of the greatest disasters I ever saw with a Dago bomb happened with Mr. Bruner next door. <laughs> we had a drunk who lived next door who was, he worked his milieu, his, his medium was the depression. You know, there are guys who work in clay. There are guys who work in oil. He worked in the depression. He was the depressed figure, you see. And, and you know those cartoons they used to have, the little man, J.Q. Public? Bruner saw himself as that. And so year after year, Bruner worked at the roundhouse. He was on the extra board for over 30 years. Now, the extra board means the guy that gets called in when everybody else is sick, don't go to work. And it was a depression. He would get about three or four days a year. Not really. And when he would do his day at the roundhouse, he would, of course, have to celebrate. It's a holiday. And so two days later, he would arrive from Flick's Tavern, bleary-eyed, staggering home, and we knew that Bruner had had his day of work. He'd celebrated it. Of course, he came home with nothing. It all went down in the Flick's coffers down there, and he'd come staggering home. Mrs. Bruner would come out on the porch and take him by the arm and lead him in, one hand, by the way, on Bruner, and the other on True Story. She was reading about real-life romances. And she would bring this lunk in, and they'd go in through the living room, and then you'd hear the yelling. And she'd yell. It was like a ritual. She had no, absolutely no idea of changing him. She knew. It's been 20 years, you know. You don't change, see. And he didn't listen. You'd hear rah, 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 and you'd hear rah, 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 rah. And then it would slowly, gradually trickle out. Nobody in the neighborhood paid any attention. It was one of those summer sounds. It would just slowly fade down, and the crickets would come up again. You'd hear the locusts coming up again, and the sound of the traffic and the airplanes going over, and Bruner would be asleep. Mrs. Bruner would come out on the front porch and sit in the swing and start swinging and reading true story. So you got the picture. This is what is next door. Well, one gigantic Fourth of July, 
And by the way, even poor kids had fireworks in the 4th of July. It was, it was a thing, it was like Christmas. Somehow a kid, if he didn't have fireworks, it was like, there's no Santa Claus, you know? So the family would say, well, one 4th of July, old man Bruner, with three quarters of a bag on, is out in front of the house helping Junior Bruner unload with a triple stage bomb. And the neighborhood is sort of hanging, just watching this thing. Everybody watched, you know, it was a neighborhood thing, the fireworks. He's out there in front, he's staggering around, you know. Young Junior is standing back like this. He puts the match to the thing. It lights, and he's trying to straighten it up, and as he does, it flops over sideways. <laughs> and young kid Bruner says, Dad, get away from it! He says, all right, straighten it out, all right, straighten it out. And the whole neighborhood is, like, who's going to volunteer? Who? Right, let me straighten it up. Right. And he turns around, and just then it goes, drunk. He looks down, and that little flaming ball bounces twice. He's watching it. It hops right up the lawn, prickles around three times, and under the porch. It's one of those porches, you know, with the laths hanging under the porch. And old Bruner, in his in his condition, he starts after it like this. He's going to get it and put it back in or something. You know? He starts after it, and all of a sudden it goes doom. Bruner just slowly sits down. The entire neighborhood watched this. And Mrs. Bruner came out of that front door. It was the first time that she let go of Bernard McFadden in over 20 years. She came tearing out. She says, where is he? She thought he finally got it. He's just sitting there. Well, this was the world of the fireworks. Now, I had, because of the fact that my father sold fireworks, it was the only true, honestly true, status symbol that I had. That's a very important thing. You know, it's like it's like if your father is Elston Howard or Mickey Mantle or something, you know? And he had this stuff. And every Fourth of July, when the midnight would hit, right at this time, it's in about an hour and a half, we would close by state law, all fireworks stands closed. And we would be left with three shelves of the most beautiful stuff you ever saw in your life. Skyrockets, Mount Vesuviuses, the big two dollar and a half pinwheels, the big 17 ball Roman candles, all the stuff that was left. It was always the big stuff that was left. And we'd load it in a big box and we'd start driving home with it. Now is the time for our fireworks celebration and the whole neighborhood would wait. Because this was a steel mill town, there wasn't much more really than a couple of little Roman candles and an occasional sparkler in the neighborhood. And they would watch the big stuff going off way off on the other end of town, you know, boom, you'd see the rich guys celebrating. Boom, the skyrockets. Somebody come out with a little sparkler, you know, hold it up, <laughs> celebrating the fourth. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it was, you know, celebrating George Washington and Lafayette here, you know, hold it up. Way off there where the dough was, you'd see this big thing going up. Red, white, and blue. Big dollar signs in it, you know, hanging up there in the middle of the air. Well, my father would bring this stuff home. Now, I'm going to tell you a story 
that is still a legend in that area. And I've told it a couple of times on the air, and I've had several calls from people who witnessed it and who remember it for being true. It's going to sound like I invented it, like it's out of a Jacques Toddy movie. But this is exactly what happened. One night after we had finished work, we're driving home, it's hot. It is exactly midnight on the 4th of July. We're coming back to our little neighborhood, and in the back seat of the Oldsmobile, there was at least $200 worth of high explosive. I mean the real stuff. Red, white, and blue patriotism all there, you know, and ready to go, those fuses. And we're sitting in the front seat. We can hardly wait to get home. The old man has just barely broken even on the stand. See, they're figuring it up. He's made $6 on the last two weeks of hell. But that didn't matter. This is what mattered in the back seat, you see. If he didn't have the stand, he wouldn't have had this. My father was a parade man. He was a fireworks man. And the worst year we ever had was the year we sold out. I'm serious. He was disappointed. It was a rotten fourth. You know, we made a lot of dough. We had nothing but a couple little sparklers left. You know. And that was the end of the fourth. But this one year, we had a ton of this junk. And we're coming back. He's got a big wooden box. And we're tearing like mad to get home through the traffic. We finally get out there. And everybody in the neighborhood starts coming out. And they just sort of, first, they don't want to, you know, nobody wants to admit that he's a freebie, you know, even with fireworks, that he's been waiting. They sort of drift out on a porch, you know, they're looking at the lawn, kicking stuff. Midnight, you know, they're getting ready to water stuff, you know. And, and they're all out there, and the old man, you'll see, he's down in the, he's, he's, he's down in the front, right next to a big lamppost, one of these big wooden lampposts. He's got his box laid out, and nine million kids are out there going to watch. And he gets ready to do this business. He's got a Ponji shirt on, incidentally. You know what a Ponji shirt is? <laughs> well, that's part of the story. I have to explain. There goes one now. Did you hear that? <laughs> it's a short-sleeved, sleazy shirt that was pre-nylon. And you could sort of see through them. They sort of hung and they sweated. They looked real terrible. And so here's the old man out there with his Ponji shirt, his work pants, and he's got a big chunk of punk, and it's going. He waits for his audience to gather, and they begin to form up. He says, all right, all right, Jeannie, the first thing we're going to start out with, get out one of the, um, let's see, how about a Mount Vesuvius? And there's a little murmur in the crowd, you know, <laughs> murmur. That sounds great, you know, in Hespel, Indiana, Mount Vesuvius. And it's, all right, so he sits it down. Now, the Mount Vesuvius was for ladies. The old man programmed his act, you see. <laughs> this was for the women and children. It's a little conical thing. You sit right in the middle of the street, you light it, and it just makes sparks. It goes pssst, like that. And everybody says, oh, isn't that pretty? And you can hear Mrs. Bruner puddling up on the porch there, you know. Mr. Bruner, look at that down there. It's beautiful. And it's just screaming. The old man says, all right, get out. Uh, let's see. Um, how about a skyrocket? And the gang, this is getting into a little heavy artillery, you know. It's like the 105s are being brought up. He says, how about a skyrocket? Well, now, there were various schools of skyrocket firers. Now, as an old skyrocket fan, this stuff that they do now to Cape Canaveral is not new to me. It's serious. There were several. There's the upright method, which they use. The upright method, you know, you just take a milk bottle, you set it down in the sand, 
and you put in the bottle the stick end of the rocket. You light it and get away. And it goes straight up. This is very unimaginative. My old man was a curveball pitcher. He loved to see him arch, you know, this kind of thing, you know, you know. And so he had a piece of angle iron, which he laid in the ground at an angle. And it would, he'd pound it down, you know, and he'd aim this thing, you know, like getting trajectory. And then he would lay it in there because he had a theory that you'd get more distance on the rockets if you'd lay them at an angle instead of straight up. You see, he was right in a way. And so he would light this thing and it would lay there. Oh, there's nothing greater or more exciting than that, I would say, that 20 seconds before a skyrocket really goes up. It just lays there from there. It's going... And it starts to wiggle. You know, everybody's... Watch. Because the one thing you're always afraid of with a rocket, it's going to blow up. Either that or it's going to fall off the thing and take out after you. <laughs> Which they did on occasion. See, everybody's watching this thing. And by the way, all everybody's secretly hoping will happen. Have you ever watched a rocket launching on television and you wish the thing would blow up and get Cronkite? You know? <laughs> And you don't know. You get a vague feeling of disappointment. They build it up. They say 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. And you say, maybe this time. And then it goes, whoop. Oh, well, back to the ball game. And you go back to the Mets, where they really have disaster. Well, every, every time a rocket went off, it's the same. You never, you never lose it. Have you ever been in a mortar crew? Same scene. You drop the thing in, everybody watches it. Gunk! Up it goes. All right, give me another one. Gunk! Everyone secretly, oh yes, our, uh, believe me, we're suicidal. We're really suicidal. Everybody is always a little irritated when his brakes hold. <laughs> they really are. There's a terrible death wish. Yeah, and when the airplane really does get down. You always think of what a great story it would be to tell them. You know, the landing gear collapsed. I grabbed the top of the thing. Boom. Oh, it was terrible. Great story, though, isn't it? Yeah. And so we're watching this thing, and the old man lays the rocket down. Everybody watches. We're waiting. Zoom. Off it goes. And it makes this big arch. You know how a rocket goes zoom, zoom, and then it catches under. The old man says, fine. The crowd applauds. Somehow a rocket firer thinks that he has exploded, you know. He takes credit for this red, white, and blue thing up there. And he moves back. And by this time, the crowd had begun to come from different neighborhoods. You know, it's midnight. All the fireworks have been fired. And suddenly a big action is breaking out on Cleveland Street. And so they're drifting down. And now there must have been about 250 people just sort of standing around this big box of stuff, and the old man is laying it off. Rockets, Mount Vesuvius, pinwheels, and then he came to the Roman candle. Now, there's an entire mystique of Roman candle firing. Some guys just hold them. You know, like the fat guys at the picnic. They just stand there like this. And the kids watch, and he says, watch. Not the old man. He takes one of these big five-footers, it had about 17 balls in it, picks it up, lights the thing, slides it like a pool cue. He's a great pool player, by the way. Snaps it a couple of times and stands it. 
slightly tilted forward. And I am in the background. I don't know how many of you ever were kids. It is very difficult looking at this crowd. But I don't know how many of you ever were kids. Do you recall the feeling of being absolutely, incredibly, without reservations, proud of your old man? You know that feeling? Even though almost every kid puts his old man down, there is one moment when the old man does it, you know. And there he was, standing out there, you know, like the Statue of Victory, laying those Roman candle balls out over Cleveland Street and arching them over towards 164th and Kennedy with that great wrist action. He's going like, you know, chum. And he timed them, you know, that's the whole point of a Roman candle. You time them between balls. He'd go, one, two, chum. He's putting them up in the different directions, you know, watch the chum, chum, like that. Over Harding School, choo, you know. And the people are watching, and he's standing down there, choo, choo. He lets go about 10 or 15 of these balls. It's getting down near the bottom, you know. He's keeping count, choo, choo. And I'm just melting. My pop. And the kids are all standing there, you know. And all the other fathers are kind of faded down to nothing. They're in the background, you know. There's just these old lawnmower pusher guys, you know guys that drove milk wagons. My old man was a Roman candle shooter. He's laying them out there with his pongee shirt flopping and big rimless glasses. He looked like a Wally Cox kind, you know, and he's like that. He gets about 15 of them down to the bottom when all of a sudden, nothing. He goes, he knows there's two left. There's a slight pause. And by the way, to his dying day, this was his major traumatic experience. Really, he used to wake up screaming at 2 o'clock in the morning, there's two more left! He would holler, yeah, that's true, and he's going like this, he goes, a couple of things like that, and the whole audience waits, silence. And without any warning, he goes, shoom, out the back, shoom, right up his sleeve, out the back. He's got a hold of his thing, his shirt is on fire, he goes, boom, the other one goes out. He turns around and his shirt is burning. He's got a hold of this thing. He runs up the front porch, rips off his shirt. He stands up and I'm standing there. The entire neighborhood. Well, they didn't know whether to laugh. I mean, the Ponzi shirt went right up like a thing, you know. Or whether to be scared or whether to feel superior. So the old man comes back down. His Ponzi shirt is gone. It's 110 degrees. And I'm saying to myself, you know, it's funny, kids sense terrible, terrible humiliation. Every one of us know that moment of awful humiliation when our parents have a party or something and it doesn't go. You know, you stand around trying to have fun. <laughs> they're having a birthday party for you, and all the kids come and they're bored and they're sort of, you know, they give them the ice cream and they don't want to be there, and it's a terrible bust. You know that awful feeling of humiliation? So I'm standing there. The old man comes down, he says, well, let's go, let's get on now with it. He's going to try to pull it through. Never mentions it. He says, well, let's get on with it. He reaches down. He takes a big skyrocket. This was exactly the sequence that occurred. Takes a big skyrocket, lays it on his angle iron. By now, he's trying to get the crowd back. He's got this big red, white, and blue baby with a big green point on it, you know, and the thing. He lights it steps back, the rocket goes off, 
makes one big sigh. You know, they make that funny... And she lays next to the ground and just slowly picks up altitude, curves twice, and makes a big corkscrew in the air. And everyone's watching. It's going, woo, woo, woo. It's going directly towards Roosevelt High School. <laughs> and there's Roosevelt out in the darkness, you know, this big high school, and it's going, woo, woo. And it's not gaining altitude. It's not doing anything. It's just, it's truly a guided missile, you know. It's, and it goes, shoo, shoo. And we're all watching. It took at least an hour to get there. It hit the top of that school building. It was one of those schools, you know, with the flat roof. It sort of hangs. It's got a couple of skylights on it. And it hit a skylight or something on there. It went, boom, like that. And everything went up. And for a second, the entire school is outlined. And we're standing there like that. And there's always one sore head in the neighborhood who calls the cops. <laughs> in that instant, it just seemed like an instant, you could hear the sirens coming. And you see something flickering on the top of Roosevelt <laughs> High School. The entire neighborhood disappeared, like that. You know? They're all in the house, you know, they're reading, they're running the radio. The whole neighborhood is underground. The fuzz is coming, you know. <laughs> Cleveland Street blew up Roosevelt High. You know? and, and we're all down, and the old man is getting the stuff. He says, hurry up, get the stuff, will you? Get it, car. All pretenses gone. Get the stuff, quick. And you can hear, And the sparks are going over there, Get the stuff, get the stuff. We're running in. We get it in the front bedroom. He hides it under the day bed. It's like Al Capone with 7,000 gallons of raw scotch, you know. He's hiding it under the day bed. What do you do? You can't throw it in the furnace. What are you going to do? He's hiding it. And the, the sirens are coming down. And by that time, we figure the school's going up. And people are peeking out. Nobody's saying anything. And gradually, the sparks begin to die down. There's nothing. The fire engines arrive, and you can see the firemen, you know, walking around looking. Nothing. It's a false alarm. And the neighborhood is already now getting that rotten kick out of it. You know? <laughs> Go ahead, you nuts. Go on, look for it. You, know? you won't pin it on us. <laughs> yeah. Sure enough, they get back in their wagons and they go. The old man is in the living room looking out. My mother is in the kitchen saying, will you stop this nuttiness? You know how mothers, will you cut it out? He's just looking. Me and my kid brother are watching. And we've got 400 pounds of high explosives left. His shirt is on the floor, burned up. The school has a hole in the roof. Ten minutes later, we're out in front. I'm telling you the truth. This is a, We're celebrating the fourth, you know, independence and all that. Ten minutes later, we're out in the front. He whips up a couple of Roman candles. You know, it's, everybody's starting to drift out like this. And he says, all right, Jeannie, get out the big, get out the big pinwheel. Well, we had a pinwheel. Do you remember how pinwheels looked? The big five-sided green piece of wood. And on each side was a big thing, a big red, white, and blue tube. And they were all connected. And coming out of it was one green fuse. And in the middle was a hole for the nail. 
Well, the old man goes, and, and I don't know to this day, you know, and, and he himself to this day went for years until he died. We talk about this. I'd say, what nuttiness, you know, when I got old enough to say things like that to him. I'd say, Dad, what nuttiness, what made you do that anyway? He'd say, well, I don't know. It must have been the excitement or something. I don't know why I did it. <laughs> Nobody knows why you do things. He said, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I figured it would work. Right on this big wooden lamppost, we have these big wooden poles, you know, with the lights hanging out. He takes the hammer and puts on the thing. Here it's hanging there. The whole crowd is watching what is right here underneath. A box, a 400-pound box of high explosives. I don't even have to tell you what happened. He lights the thing and it starts to go, you know, shoo, shoo. They're great to watch, you know, everything. There's, in fireworks, there is always the tension of the unexpected, the disaster. Will it work? Will it not? And so the, this thing starts to go. You know, big sparks. It's a tremendous wheel. Everybody's saying, oh, that's great. And they're all cheering. And you could see outlined in the darkness, everybody's back, though, is this box of fireworks? The old man is 20 feet away. You can't run into the bath of fire. You know, and we're watching. Round and round and round it goes. And then it happened. The first one, you hear a little boom in the box. Boom. Something flies up. And the old man says, get some water. Get some water. Get some water. And then you see boom. And then ka-doom. Eight, eight skyrockets at once. They ain't got milk bottles. They ain't got angle irons. They just got anger. They go like that. Woo! Boom! Well, for over a half an hour, the street shook. It was the greatest firework display in the history of Hammond, Indiana. And about 20 minutes into the show, you could hear, Woo! Well, by the time they arrived, there was nothing but a smoking mess of rubbish. Three windows were broken. I'm telling you the story. Four guys had their cars busted. Stuff went right into it. And everybody in the neighborhood was out applauding. <laughs> Even the guys whose cars burned up, you know. <laughs> hey, hey, watch it. It was great. Speaking of explosions, this is WORAM at FM New York, right? What station is it? Some guy hollered WQXR up there. <laughs> WBAI. Seriousville. But, you know, uh, th th this business of, of fireworks has so many wild ramifications. It really does, and it's, it's hardly ever really been explored as to what it really means, what the whole point of it is, why we did these things. And, you know, I saw the other night on a, on a big TV show, big one, uh, I think it was Rip Torn, combat, and he is throwing, <laughs> he is throwing grenades. Any of you guys who are in the army, have you, have you ever wondered how those guys in the, in the, <laughs> in the movies are so great with grenades? They throw them like tennis balls, you know, they're kind of, and they just sort of, boom, they only kill the other guys. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to have to tell you a, a thing that happened to me on a grenade range. Speaking of high-class fireworks, and since this is the 4th of July, we might as well talk about it. We're all brought up, you know, to, to think in terms of Van Johnson 
Anybody got a grenade? He takes the thing and he goes like this, you know. Boom! There go the Japs. No problem, you see. Little fireworks. It's like throwing your torpedo, kid, you know, no problem. But we get out on the grenade range and you learn something about yourself and about the nature of man, about patriotism, why we have wars, and some things you don't even want to talk about. The minute you hold one of those pieces of iron in your hand. You ever held a real live, honest to John grenade in your hand with that big handle hanging down there? You ever held one? Or Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Sure do. Have you ever hefted in your hand? It's a terrible thing to talk about, but this is the truth. Have you ever held in your hand a 45 service automatic? It weighs about, oh, it feels like 10 pounds. You just hold this thing, you know, you heft it. And somehow you feel 30 feet tall. And then the next thing that begins to creep in, you begin to have a desire to, you know, to, to, I wonder how it goes. You want to fire it off. You really do. You want to fire this thing off. It's a terrible desire. Because it feels so natural. It feels like it's made to fire. It's like a car you're sitting in, you know, and you got the key, there's a steering wheel. You put your foot down, there's the brakes there and the clutch. You look on the gas, it's a full tank of gas. And ahead of you is a giant turnpike. Well, how long can you sit in that car? You know, just full with the wheel. See, just full. Well, for about four or five days, they are giving us hand grenade indoctrination. Speaking of hand grenades, hey! I'll finish this story after the break. This is the gang from the Red Garden. Hey, listen, Joe, who's, who's here with you tonight? Hey, John, can, can you guys do tonight anything that has to do with the 4th of July? Can you do Columbia, the gem of the ocean? That's oh, awful, sure, all right. What can you do? You got anything like that? How about Stars and Stripes? Huh? All right, let's hear it. By the way, if you don't know these guys, they're from the they're from the Red Garter down the street. Let's hear it. Yeah, it, go ahead.
That's the gang from the Red Garter down the street. Give them a cheer before they go back to work down there. Look at that fantastically brave, solid tuba man leaving out here. The bulwark of the nation. As an old ex-sousaphone player, I know what he's doing. Uh, let's see, we've got the news in about a minute and a half. You know, I want to tell you the rest of the story about that grenade. Because that... That the feeling of power, the feeling of the heft of a grenade is the same feeling this sousaphone player feels. <laughs> Believe me, sitting up here, towering over the band, looking down over that German silver mouthpiece with the, with the sound of the thunderer coming through that horn, spinning around you and blaring out, and a kid throwing a red-hot penny in the bell. <laughs> you know what America's about. We're down here at the... Yeah... <laughs> We're down here at the Limelight on Sheridan Square in the heart of Greenwich Village. We will be back in exactly six minutes. And now a giant symbolic cheer. Half a minute. Tell them to take it back there. Come on, give them another cheer. Come on. They can give us a little more news. We'll be back in six minutes. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Stay tuned now for Ed Pettit reporting the latest news. Coming your way.